NPR's Susan Stamberg and Linda Wertheimer join us this week to discuss their careers, being a woman journalist in the 1970s, at a startup organization, and even more. I'm Ezra Graham in Gallatin Gateway, Montana. We're back after a break from the podcast. There's going to be some amazing interviews in store for you on News Nerds. So it's a full episode with two amazing women that I looked up to and you will too. Here's the show. Susan Stamberg is now a special correspondent for National Public Radio, NPR. She's been inducted into the Broadcasting Hall of Fame as well as the Radio Hall of Fame, and she hosted All Things Considered for 14 years as well as Weekend Edition. She's considered a founding mother of NPR since she was hired in 1971. Linda Wertheimer serves as NPR's senior national correspondent, and she spent 13 years hosting All Things Considered and joined NPR also in 1971. Before that, she worked at the BBC and WCBS. Thank you so much uh, for being with us today. Very welcome. Glad to be here. So what, how did you grow up? Like, what were your childhoods like? Susan, you want to start? Well, I'm a New Yorker from Manhattan. So I, that's how I grew up, very New York. And I talked like this then. And I had to, once I went on the radio, and especially hosting All Things Considered, had to learn not to say all things considered, but rather to sort of straighten out my speech to make it a little more national. But uh, the city was thrilling, as exciting as it is today to grow up in, uh, not nearly as crowded, but it had every possibility of all the things that I love, which are cultural things and museums and art and music and theater. I would go to first uh, openings. Uh, I didn't never went to an opening night when I was a kid, but you went to first presentations of really uh, shows that just became part of, of uh, theater legend in New York. And we had very, very good public education and a sizable uh, population, but nothing like Linda did in, in New Mexico. I mean, it was uh, about, what, a hundred times larger, a thousand times larger than your town, right? Was, well, yes, but I, I lived in a town that about 25,000 people. Right. Uh, it was called, it's called Carlsbad, New Mexico. I was born there and I lived there most of my life until I went to college. There was a brief, um, intermission when we thought that my dad was going to be drafted. So we all had to move to my grandmother's house in Lubbock, Texas. But I came back because he wasn't drafted. The uh, army wanted him because they thought he'd be a good commissionaire uh, for, you know, getting things moved around the country. But he had astigmatism. So the people that say you can get in or you can't get in said you can't. Mm. Anyway, um, I grew up in a small mining town in the West. Carlsbad was a uh, the potash mining town and did very well during the war when potash was used to make, to make ammunition. Uh, and then after the war, when potash was used to make fertilizer. But the town was small, it's on the Pecos River. I went to public high school, public school all, all, all the way through. And when I was in high school, I saw my first woman doing the news on television and decided that I could do that too. 
when did you decide that you wanted to pursue a job in journalism? Well, I was about, I would say I was about uh, 15 years old. Ooh. I had no, I mean, I had no idea what was involved in doing it. And I certainly had no idea what would be involved in getting the job. But I, you know, I talked to everybody that I could think of who could help me and uh, formulated a plan. And my plan was very basic. I said to myself that I would go to the best college I could get into and hope that that would help. And that is what I did. I went to Wellesley College. Susan, uh, what was that like for you? Because, I mean, you, you grew up in a, you know, a bigger town, so I would think that would be kind of easier to, you know, formulate that idea. Yeah, well, there were a lot of jobs, sure. More, more jobs in New York than uh, in Carlsbad. I guess that's right. But I, I didn't have a driving wish to become a journalist. Uh, I'm Jewish. And in those days, uh, they had quota systems, some of those big institutions. So uh, I was told by a colleague of mine, also Jewish and uh, considerably older, and a brilliant reporter. He worked for uh, CBS News and then he came to us at NPR. Daniel Shore is his name. But he told me he had applied to the New York Times, which was probably the best paper in the country, uh, and was told, no, we already have our Jew. So it was very clear that it, it was a very limited opportunity for me, but I didn't want it anyway. I wanted, I was an English major, split my major at Barnard College. That's the women's part of Columbia uh, in Manhattan. Majored in English and also sociology. And I just, I wanted an interesting job, I thought, in publishing, probably not newspapering, although I worked on the school paper. I was an editor of our, my high school paper, as well as the Barnard paper. But I, I really didn't think about doing journalism for, for say, I figured something in publishing or something for a magazine, but it wasn't, you know, my burning wish was not. Linda and I both, uh, we just discovered so much about each other. We've known each other for years. We were roommates in the offices at NPR, but we both discovered that because opportunities for women in our day were so limited that our dreams were, to get jobs with really interesting men. Her man in her fantasy was Edward R. Murrow, the great inventor really of, of uh, broadcast journalism. And mine was to uh, work for Joseph Papp, who was a great theatrical uh, magician really in Manhattan and formed the public theater. But it, it shows you how those were high ambitions in our day. We were supposed to get married, have children, Right, maybe if we were lucky, then we would have interesting jobs as well. But uh, we thought outside secretarial of jobs, of course. Secretarial, good typing, right? All of that. Well, my 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 dad insisted that I take typing lessons. Uh huh. Which and I mean I uh, that I take typing in in uh, high school, which I did. Oh wow! And I was amazed to discover when I got to college that. Uh, I was one of the fastest typists there because, you know, the others didn't seem to think that this was anything that they really had to do. <laughs> yeah. But I know women who were uh, adamant about not learning how to type because they yes, indeed. that's going to take them. And then they'll get stuck only doing that. And I'll realize I certainly started doing that too as a fast typist. I didn't know you were too. But Ezra, so, there is, there's a tiny lesson here for you. Go to work for whatever your college 
newspaper or radio station is, and that will teach you a lot of things about a career in journalism, if in fact you haven't just gotten totally bored with journalism by that time. <laughs> You'll never get bored with journalism, Ezra. That's why it's such so a good either. profession. <laughs> Being a, a woman back in the 70s was really not, it was very challenging, you know, especially getting a job uh, like being a journalist. Um, so you share some stories about the discrimination that you faced when trying to get a job. What was that like for you? Because I know that Linda, you know, you worked before NPR for the BBC and uh, WCBS, and you have some stories about uh, that. So let's start with you, Linda. Well, one of the things that happened, of course, was that I, you'd, I'd start out looking for a job and people would say, encouraging things like, we already have our woman. <laughs> this exactly the same person at CBS said exactly the same thing to our colleague, Koki Roberts, when she applied for a job there. Um, so that was, that was a, you know, that, that's a, gave you a feeling for where we stood <laughs> in the hierarchy of possible uh, employees. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I really began to feel that maybe I would not be able to get any kind of job. So what I, what I did was I went to work with the help of uh, my college, which had jobs at the BBC. They, they mm -hmm. traded students from Lady Margaret Hall at Oxford came to the United States and worked in jobs that Wellesley College found for them. Mm. And girls from Wellesley College went to the BBC and into jobs that the, uh, that the, colleges, the college in Oxford found for them. It was interesting because, you know, I just went in, I made zero money. I mean, we, had, we were so strapped for cash that um, it, was, it was pitiful. But we had a wonderful time and learned a lot. One of the people I learned a lot from were, were the, was a woman who was an editor of, uh, actually she was an editor of the book editor by the time I met her. But when all of the men in London had to go to war, either as soldiers or as, or as journalists or something, and women of course were not even possibly considered, there were very few of them made it into that area but women had to fill in behind them. So women took all the had all the jobs at home. And when the guys came back, they immediately were moved out of those jobs. However, it was such a long and terrible war that many of the men who went to war didn't get back at all. Mm. And uh, so therefore, these women were, were, were still working at the BBC and I got to meet them and work with them and hear their stories and learn things that about you know how to how to get where you want to go and uh it was a very interesting time wcbs was also interesting wcbs was uh was a news radio station when i went to work for it but it had just begun to switch over to news radio from top 40. going to work for an outfit that is starting up means that they don't have a lot of you know, fixed ideas about who should do what. And so you can, you know, you can move around and do a few things, which I did at, at WCBS. It was a, Charlie Osgood was there at that time, Lou Adler, um, 
people who became big guys. broadcasters, well-known broadcasters yeah. years later. Ed Bradley, very mm -hmm. well-known broadcasters and, you know, and, and still friends. Mm -hmm. I, on the other hand, never got a job that was not decided in my behalf by a man. And then had all the power. <laughs> That's true. They had the power. They were the managers. They could make the decisions. But uh, they would hire women because we were cheap. We could work for very low salaries. We didn't have families to support. And if we were married, uh, as I was, there were two salaries in the house. And so I could take a cut in salary in order to get, uh, to get away from being a secretary typing on, on a magazine in Washington and begin radio and try, try my hand at that. So that's really, it's, it's a difference. And it has to do, it goes with the startup part. That chance, I ended up as manager of the station which, with absolutely no credentials to be that. It was only that the manager himself left and they needed someone to run things. But I had a lot of on-air experience, much more than Linda did or Koki or Nina. And it got me easy at a microphone. And that really stood in my stead when NPR uh, started because I wasn't, uh, I wasn't ill at ease with it. It was a familiar thing to me. And startups could do that for you too, when everybody's starting out at the same time and you're a little bit ahead of them because of experience. Tell me about uh, Bill Seamarine and why he, you know, hired you for NPR, which was created uh, when the Public Broadcasting Act came to be, and not only television but radio was included in that. Mm -hmm. Good. Has it was sort of her. a miracle. <laughs> yeah, you have to tell. I love your hiring story. Well, I I got I got hired by Bill Seamarine. I went the for first more than manager. one interview. My husband sent me there from, <laughs> uh, he ran into a friend who worked in a Senate office and he, the, the friend said, you know, they're starting this new thing called public radio. I don't know much about it, but it's in the Public Broadcasting Act and uh, they're hiring now. You might uh, maybe get Linda to go over there and see what she can find out. So I went. And I found out that they were hiring. And so I got an interview with Mr. Seamering, who was, I think of him as the philosopher king of NPR. He was the person who thought the most deeply about what NPR ought to, sound, ought to sound like, I think. Other people were killing themselves trying to figure out how they could have enough money to run the place, enough people to run the place, pay the rent. And he was thinking about what the listener would hear and take away from the broadcasts. So anyway, I sat down there and I, you know, I, I, I told him all the things I thought would matter to him. I went to Wellesley College. I was uh, from another part of the country. I thought that would be a, you know, that would be helpful because he was trying to be uh, diverse. You know, I had a, I had a little list and uh, he was just not buying it, not at all buying it. And then all of a sudden it occurred to me that he thought I was a fancy person because I went to a fancy college for women. So I said, but my first job, I said, was delivering groceries in my dad's pickup truck. My father had a small grocery store and I, I looked around and I said, it was about the size of the room out there. It was very little. And uh, I delivered groceries for my father. And I worked on weekends at his store. 
And that was my first experience of working. And I said, now, he didn't pay me for this work. He told me he would give me an allowance unless I didn't work. And then he wouldn't give me an allowance. So it was, at that point, Bill Simmering decided that I might actually be a red-blooded American girl <laughs> after all. <laughs> it's great. You uh, you have lots of you have had lots of time on air at NPR, but you also um, you guys had to you know produce the stories too because it was a startup and you know there was you had to do d different jobs. So tell me what it was like when there was not as much technology as there is today. There was just tapes. Uh, oh. Tell me what that was like to to do that work at NPR. I can tell that. Uh, the, the magnetic tape was about this thick. Can you see? Yeah. And it was on a big reel. You've seen movie reels and, and the way film wraps around them. Well, that's what ours was like. But the, the film is about that thick, although that too is all digital now. But anyway, it was. But ours was narrower. And what you did, uh, you could edit it. But it was a very physical act. It wasn't just clicking some buttons here and there on a computer. There were no computers. Uh, you had to have a very good and sharp razor blade. And you had a block on which you fixed your tape and made a, a diagonal slash in the part of the tape where you wanted to end and begin a section. Then you threw that middle part away. You put the two together and you had some sticky tape like scotch tape, but narrower, and you tape the two things together. And that was, those were the glories <laughs> of editing tape uh, in the early years. Uh, people who did that all day long came around sometimes with bloodied fingertips because they were working so fast and they had to work under enormous pressure. I, to my ear, nothing sounds nearly as good as the sound that we recorded with that magnetic tape. It was much richer and it had a breadth and a a depth to it that uh, I still find much more beautiful. But the digital is so effective in some, so many, many ways. And yeah, both of us had to do all of that. We didn't have producers. Once uh, we all we started hosting, I uh, got there first in the host seat, Linda came later. Uh, we had some staff, which we didn't have at the beginning. And we had producers who uh, could help us. And when you uh, uh, on a program, you'll have maybe four or so different producers. So you've got a, a cast of cutters uh, in there, and that made life much easier. But we had to do it all by ourselves at the start. I, I, again, I was very familiar with that because I had done it before. You probably had not. Had you, Linda? Well, I had, uh, I, I had done it before. I, I did it at, at the Beeb and I did it at, uh, uh -huh. at uh, News Radio 88. Of course, I was not a union member, so I couldn't actually cut the tape. But I would, uh -huh. uh, but I, they taught me what to do and, and let me practice uh -huh. so that in case I wanted to, you know, it was, it was, um, it was just much, much slower. I think that's the thing than, than mm -hmm. it is now. You know, you just had to know all these funny things like somebody would take a breath and you would, you had to be careful where you cut the tape because otherwise they would be gasping at the wrong place in the sentence. But it was, uh, you know, it was, it was fun to do, I have to it say. I, I enjoyed cutting tape. I did too. But, um, and I enjoyed it somewhat more than I have enjoyed the, you know, the deep tech that we work in now.
But, you know, as one of these things about this line of work is that it changes all the time. Mm -hmm. And you have to constantly be prepared to catch up and learn new things. So the Beeb is the BBC, if anybody <laughs> right. by that. Um, and NPR is the Nipper. <laughs> now you know our I've two big secrets. Well, one anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, so Susan, you moved to India. What, what was that like for you? Because you, you had been living in Washington, D.C., and then you yes. to a different country. Well, this was long before uh, NPR was even created. It was in the early 60s. You were working at AMU, right? Yeah. And uh, we went because my husband was in the uh, equivalent of the Foreign Service at the State Department. He was in the Foreign Aid Agency. And uh, he was got posted uh, in New Delhi. And I was thrilled to be able to go there. I'd, I'd wanted to go to India for years and years. And so we lived there for about three, three years. At that point, I had, had, uh, had been working a job at a local Washington, D.C. station, WAMU, which is one of the powerhouses now of, uh, of NPR, but was just a college radio station when it was started. It's interesting because I've really been there for two major broadcast institutions uh, at the beginning of each of them which, as Linda's point was, it gave us every opportunity to learn and do a million things. So I kept on doing I bought a tape recorder, which I hadn't owned. I was using the stations and took it with me to India and kept doing things. I, I worked, first of all, for the Voice of America correspondent there, and I helped him organize his stories. And then I just started doing some of my own. But it wasn't very interesting to me to, to be, be doing that there. Uh, but it was wonderfully interesting to be going to places outside and getting the sounds of cattle walking in the streets and sacred cows mooing and creaking uh, carriages and all of that. So I gathered a lot of that and uh, sent those tapes back home to my station, to WAMU, uh, with reports and just talking about what life was like. And they would run them. They went really long, about 40 minutes long. But they, I did maybe once a month, maybe more frequently. But I loved it. It opened, as it does to this day, a microphone opens worlds to you that you could otherwise never enter. And so I could go to a village, you know, and get into somebody's house in the village with my uh, microphone. They were always a little scared then. They weren't so familiar. There was no television in India then. Uh, so they didn't see on TV people using microphones and, you know, making that rude gesture of poking something in, under your nose. They calmed down and they would begin talking to me. Somebody stood and helped me by uh, interpreting and all of that. That was quite wonderful. I loved doing that, actually. So we and then we came home and uh, got the word that, that this organization was starting. And I had worked at something that was kind of a precursor of it. Uh, before there was an NPR. So I went and applied, and the guy who'd been the president of that precursor, which was 12 stations just across the East Coast, became NPR's first president, a man named Don Quayle. And I just badgered him and badgered him and said, I really want to go over to this new thing, tell me about it. And he made it happen. The, the other, so you guys are two of NPR's founding mothers. There's two others. Nina Totenberg and Koki Roberts. Koki yes. Roberts passed away in late 2019, and Nina is still working for NPR 
as you two are, but she's at the height of her Supreme Court reporting. You're right. So Cokie Roberts, I'm going to talk, let's talk about Cokie Roberts. She's, yeah. she joined NPR in 1978 to cover politics. So she, right. I think it's fair to say that she left a mark on you and NPR. Um, what was so unique about Cokie Roberts? Well, when I came, when I came to NPR and I was interested in politics and wanted to cover politics and finally managed to do a few stories on the Hill. And then when somebody left, I got that job. So I, I, was, I was covering politics and covering Congress at the same time. And Cokie basically had this exactly the same assignment I did. But she brought something different to this, to this task. Her father had been the majority leader of the House. And her mother, after her father's death, had been elected to the House as well and became a leader in the house. You know, I, I, I realized right away, of course, that Koki, probably by the age of 10 or 12, knew about as much about politics and how Congress works and so on that I knew in my working life uh, at NPR. So that was, it was a little bit of a shock for me, but Koki was a very kind and generous person. She shared, uh, a lot. We finally worked out a system where where we we would we we actually traded jobs sometimes in the middle of the day. She would come in and, and say that she was supposed to go over to the house, but she couldn't go because she had to do this. And I would say, well I'll do it. So I would go to the house and do her assignment. Or she would pick up my assignment when I was just unable to get out of a hearing that I was anchoring uh, in time to, to do it myself. Uh, it, was, uh, it was really wonderful. I think we, we, it was a way that I hope people will always find to work at NPR. But you know, there was such a lot of uh, uh, feeling about the way women are at that time. People always believed that as long as there was only one or maybe two women in serious jobs in an organization, that what they would try to do is kill one another, or at least seriously injure one another so that they could, you know, move up. And I, you know, that just never happened at NPR. And yeah. part of the reason it didn't happen was Koki. Koki had, because of her very generous nature and her very kind attitude and the way she went out of her way all the time to help people who needed help whether they knew they needed help or not. Yeah, she was quite a remarkable person and a wonderful journalist. Nina, Nina Totenberg says about it that she thinks, she says, Koki for saint. <laughs> but of course, Nina is Jewish and can't <laughs> nominate her. <laughs> Koki would like it though, wouldn't she? Yeah, no, well, I think it would, it would, not, be, it would not be wrong <laughs> to do that. Great. And then Nina, you know, Nina is just a, I think Nina has done a brilliant job essentially of forging a way to cover the court and a way to cover uh, not just the court, but, but, but the lower courts as well, which she did for a long time. And she would explain it all so clearly. She has a really real gift for explaining it. And she used to do these kind of lists. She would say, item. And then she would tell you something that you needed to know. And then item, and there would come the next one. 
she she is just so so good at, uh, at at doing that kind of thing and i think i think that many many of the people who have covered the court since nina just started doing it are frank imitators of mm -hmm. the way she does it mm -hmm. she is an en energized bunny too i mean she never quits she just has more energy than all of everyone appearing on your podcast at this moment it's really fantastic and the thing, what she used to do when there would be arguments she would take notes she had her own shorthand i don't know how that worked but she would read back what the justice asked and what the plaintiff whoever was talking the other lawyers said and she would become all those characters now they can they are recorded and and they are it's permitted now to broadcast excerpt but i told her quit broadcasting them it's so much more fun to hear you be all of them because <laughs> she made it into a drama you know <laughs> so now everything has become you know so modern there's no tapes anymore um npr is there's many many member stations um so what do you think about like modern things like podcasts because you know this is a podcast you know what do you think about that i've had very mixed feelings about it i wish everybody great success everybody seems to want to do one but uh, i don't know how you build audiences and and the, the kernel of that uh, is what I think bothers me about it. In our day, you sat down, you timed your day around when the nightly news would come on and you could hear or watch, it's in a, around the radio, uh, Walter Cronkite or uh, Edward Almo, the great journalists of, of the time, the people who were inventing broadcasting. Nobody does that anymore. And the gathering around that electronic fire, fireplace unified the country in a way created a community, which we don't have anymore, so that uh, you can have 12 or 1,200 viewers, terrific. But those viewers will turn to you because you will tell them the things they are interested in. You won't get a sense of what else was happening in the world or what else was going on. And you won't get a broad audience of people who are hearing the same thing. It's not an issue of fake news, it was not them, it was the news. And it's the country heard it, and it unified the country in many ways, uh, in a way that would, couldn't happen today. There's just not a unification of media. Well, Susan and Linda, thank you so much for talking to me. And it's just been such a joy. Oh, thank you for your interest, <laughs> Ezra, and best of luck to you. You stay with this. You stay yeah. with this. You come see us sometime in Washington. Come see Please us. Please do. I want to. Facility, and we'll take you in. We'll take you to lunch. How about that? And I, not at the canteen either. <laughs> it's pretty good food. It's pretty good food. <laughs> that was Susan Stamberg. She's a special correspondent for NPR, and she hosted All Things Considered for 14 years, as well as Weekend Edition. Linda Wertheimer serves as NPR's senior national correspondent, and she spent 13 years hosting All Things Considered and joined NPR in 1971. <laughs>
it for this week's episode of News Nerds. You can find us on the web at newsnerdspodcast.com. There you can listen to past episodes of News Nerds, Cow Pies, and other News Nerds extras. You can also listen to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. While you're there, please subscribe to the podcast. While you're on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. Another way to listen is by listening every other week on Thursdays at 5.30 p.m. Mountain Time on KJVM Community Radio for the Gallatin Valley. If you are not in the Gallatin Valley area, go to KJVM's website, kgvm.org, to listen on their live stream. So, you know how Susan Stamberg said that she had lived in India? I'm really wondering, has she ever been to Mumbai? Bye? See you next week. We'll be back with a new show. Thanks for listening to News Nerds.